Welcome to the Astrophysics Podcast. If you listened to the first two episodes and kept with it, first of all, thank you for listening. Secondly, I should let you know that this episode will be a little bit different from the last two. A few weeks ago, I was in Santa Barbara at a conference celebrating the 60th birthday of Dr. Lars Bildston, who has made major contributions to the astrophysics community over his career, and I expect he'll continue to do so for a long time. I did not interview Lars, and in fact, I didn't even bother to ask him if he had any spare time during this conference to sit down with me because I knew the answer would be no, but perhaps I'll get him next time I'm there. However, one of the other attendees at this conference who I did get to interview was Dr. Francis Timmies, who is a professor of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University, as well as Associate Editor-in-Chief of some of the most highly regarded scientific journals in astrophysics. Frank is an interesting guy. He's not like a lot of the other scientists I know. Most of us try to make our mark by working on the hot topics in astrophysics, and we'll usually summarize the work in terms of the biggest scientific questions. Frank is a little bit different. He has this incredible ability to see great power and potential in things that other people find mundane, and he has often made his mark by his service to the community, both as a journal editor and by producing a large number of public tools that other astrophysicists use to attack the big questions. So a lot of his work is sort of under the hood or behind the scenes, but as a result, he has managed to make major impact on a wide variety of topics in astrophysics. Talking with Frank, you can really tell he gets excited by the day-to-day -day process of reading papers, doing extremely detailed calculations, and writing code. And I have to say, his attitude is really contagious. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with him as much as I did. I'm Paul Duffel, and this is the Astrophysics Podcast. me interrupting you a lot it might sure. seem like i'm being rude or pushy <laughs> but okay. it's just so that it sounds like a, a dialogue rather yeah, than yeah, a monologue. Just, believe me you will i will not be monologue <laughs> <laughs> okay, not to, my style good to hear um I all right tend to be brief more than long <laughs> great <laughs> um all right i guess it's we're ready to get started now sure so welcome to the astrophysics podcast i'm paul duffel and my guest today is dr francis timmies i don't normally i don't think i've ever said your name as francis while i've been in the same room with you but uh <laughs> Dr. Frank Timmies, professor, professor of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. Uh, Dr. Timmies, thank you for being on the program. Well, Paul, thank you so much for the invitation and, and invite to chat. Absolutely. Um, okay, so I'd like to start things off by talking about you personally and how you sure. got, got to be a scientist. Uh, so let's start by telling me a little bit about where you grew up. Everywhere and nowhere, Paul. Okay. Uh, Where so, were you born? <laughs> so I was born in San Jose, California, so okay. I'm, I'm a hoser. Uh, but my mom was uh, eight months pregnant uh, and flew into San Jose because she specifically wanted me born in San Jose. Really? And then after I was born, one, two months after that, we flew out. And so... Why, um, why did she specifically want, to, want you born uh, in San Jose? Because on my mom's side, uh, the Danes, Danish ancestors came over to California uh -huh. uh, in about the 1830s or something like that. Okay. Uh, they didn't get the gold land. Um, <laughs> so, but it was important for her that I be a whatever, fourth, fifth, sixth generation Californian. And so oh. that's why I was born in San Jose. Really? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, that's that's interesting. So you that's a, so that's a long legacy of 
family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they have these old, uh, I guess, silver graphs or something like that. And yeah, they can point out my, my Danish ancestors okay. on my mother's side from way back. Okay. But to answer your question everywhere and nowhere, um, uh, answer that. Uh, so my dad was a military man. Okay. Uh, and so we moved around uh, every year uh, when I was a kid. I'd go to one public school, and then we moved to a different part of the oh. country. Always in the U.S. Didn't go. Didn't go outside. But okay. so when I say everywhere and everywhere, I've been all over the states. Okay. As, as so, a child. The, so it's not. You, you, I couldn't. You couldn't say like I grew up in this no. town. It was all. It was all of them. All of them. <laughs> so you learn some skill sets. Okay. So. Uh, so yeah, I know that's a little bit. So you had, you know, you you make a whole bunch of new friends and then they're gone. You so the skill to, set that you learn is yes. you learn how to to make and break friends easy. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of a scary skill to have. I don't know if I want that skill. <laughs> well, for example, I have no idea what it's like to like live in one town where you grow up with the same people in middle school and high school. Right. And then you do, I mean, I have no clue what that right. is like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I grew up in a big city, so I didn't. Okay. Uh, so similarly, uh, Seattle. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. I, so we did. Yeah, I mean, similarly, like I wouldn't have the same people in high school as I had in middle school and stuff like yeah. that. So it would, you know, but it's obviously different. Like you can still have long-term friends. You're not leaving town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I actually um, spent a year in Seattle. One of the, one of the I think I was must have been nine. When we were in Seattle because there's a uh, several military bases up there, and so my dad okay. was there. Yeah. So do you have a do you have a memory of the first time you knew you wanted to do science or astronomy or physics? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, yes and no. Um, okay. Do you have any me any memories of? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so memories. Let's go memories. I think I must have been like in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. Or fourth grade, whenever you're you're learning your multiplication tables, mm -hmm. uh, and the teacher played this little game, and so she wrote up a number, you know, like five numbers across the chalkboard, still mm -hmm. chalkboards, and so she would send five of us up there, and you had to write as many combinations of multiplications that you could get to, let's say it was five. So one times five, five times one, as many of those as you could do down. Okay. And so somehow I think I got a very easy number. I forget what it was, but I had like, you know, half the chalkboard filled up with combinations <laughs> of multiples of integers that, that maybe. And I go, oh, this is kind of cool. This is kind of mm -hmm. cool. Uh, but I didn't really have an inkling I wanted to be a scientist at that point. You just thought math, math was fun. I thought math was fun. It was yeah. just easy. It was just flowed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and in high school, uh, I thought physics was stupid. I mean, really? Oh yeah, I thought this was the dumbest thing in the world. How in the world am I smashing two balls together? How does that mean anything to the world? I mean, I just didn't. I didn't understand. Yeah. Understand it. Plus, I didn't. You know, it was so good. Um, so I didn't uh, decide to get into astronomy until I was. Uh, well into my late 20s, let's say, um, okay. early 30s, um, okay. <laughs> somewhere in there. So you were uh, so so high school and, and, and college. You you were what were you what were you studying then, if not physics, or or astronomy? Uh, or? I would say the honest answer to that question was swimming. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I also happened to swim competitively. Uh, okay. Um, that was reasonable, um, and so that's really. But academics was not my thing in sort of the traditional time okay. scale where you go high school to right. college, right? And so in all that, I was swimming, and that was my main focus, okay. I think, in life. Um, and after that went away, um, uh, I uh, 
a number of years went by. <laughs> uh, and it was only then, in sort of like my late 20s, I decided, okay, you know what, I'm going to get serious about academia because okay. I was relatively good at it. It flowed. Oh, okay. Uh, so then I actually went to UC Santa Barbara to do my undergraduate. Oh, okay. Uh, and this was in the 80s. Uh, uh, yeah, in the <laughs> 80s. Um, and then after that, um, uh, I had gotten myself into so much debt um, that I went up and worked in Silicon Valley uh, for a number of years. I was doing um, uh, power devices, so devices that handle a lot of current and voltage. Oh. Um, it's so you majored in physics and then applied that to, to Silicon, Silicon Valley. Valley. So, uh, yeah, I got a uh, position doing uh, device simulations. So that was both at the device level, so an actual transistor. How does a transistor work? And do Okay. Do. So you and made then, good money then, probably. Right? I would say I made good money and I spent all that money. <laughs> <laughs> I was not a good boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and it was only after working in Silicon Valley for about four or five years, um, this sort of idealistic uh, streak came up. Uh, <laughs> and I decided, you know what, I'm, uh, I want to be an astronomer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some astrophysics. And so, okay. it, uh, so ripe how, old but age how do you get into it? <laughs> right away, you were going to say? And so right at some <laughs> ripe old age of 32 or something, I said, okay, let's, right. let's go to grad so school. So how do you, uh, I mean, that's a transition that's tricky, like after you've already gotten out of it. Been out uh, of it, yeah. Uh, but you just... You just studied up. I and just. I didn't even do that. I just, oh, let's just go. <laughs> okay. So, so I applied to like forty places. Oh, that was um, smart though. Oh yeah, because you know you never know. <laughs> uh, and so I got into a few, and I ended up choosing Santa Cruz, and so I went to UC Santa Cruz Lick Observatory uh, for my graduate work, um, and I was the oldest graduate student coming in. Okay. Well, that's okay. But I actually, <laughs> so I was. I mean, I would say I had a sim not not same thing because I didn't go to, ever go to Silicon Valley. But I had a long break between mm -hmm. uh, undergrad and grad school, and I was one of the. I don't know if I was the oldest. I didn't count. What did you do? But uh, I know uh, you're, I know I, you're I, interviewing I, me, but I'm turning around <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I did a lot of things. I worked at a pizza place. Okay. I worked. I was a security guard for a while. I, I just did a whole bunch of stuff. So, so one of the things I did was uh, animal feed delivery. So okay. uh, we would haul up animal feed, and I would take it out actually, to the, the ranches. I, actually, I thought I would hate it, but I actually really enjoyed food service. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was really fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, <laughs> to answer your question uh but yeah so but uh, but i i know like for me it was hard to get back into it or at least you know hard to get accepted into a grad school mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. because if you've taken so much time nobody knew who you were mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and you weren't on the standard track right right right, right, right. So, yeah 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 uh uh so yeah i ended up uh, uh going to santa cruz um yeah, it was great, okay. and it's been that story so ever since. So it was sort of a it was like sort of a, didn't you never had an inkling towards astronomy before that, or or you just you just generally yeah, just, thought of no, it? No, I didn't have an inkling toward it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what maybe spurred me in that direction is actually I went to a dentist office, and uh, they had a National Grid Geographic on the table, okay. and the Geographic was uh, about um, Supernova 1987A. Oh, okay. And so so in there was Bob Kirshner and, and Stan Woosley, and they were talking about 87A and National Geographic. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool. Um, yeah, I ought to try and do this. <laughs> I love it when a 
story, I have no idea where it's going. You start by saying I'm going to a dentist's office, and this is how I <laughs> decided I wanted to well, go into. Well, it. maybe this is where I, I think this is what I want to do. That's I cool. Do. Uh, um, and so I just ended up. I ended up going to Santa Cruz, where uh, Stan Woosley happened to be, and so I ended up being Stan Woosley's um, graduate student. Wow, that's cool. So okay, now do you? How were your parents in any way influences on how you became to be a scientist, or was it just your own sort of? You suddenly said, "I want to do astro." Uh, no. So uh, you know, to give away my age a little bit, uh, Sputnik was a thing when mm -hmm. I was a kid, and there was a huge influx of money and interest in you know. Okay, we got to pick up what we now call STEM, right? Because we got to mm -hmm. compete with with Sputnik. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was a military man. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so as a kid, he would spend a lot of time having us do these, like, electronic projects and just, you know, gave oh. us chemistry sets and, you know, just, and engaged us while we were doing it. So, right, oh, right, here's right. chemistry. Oh, <laughs> what am I going to blow up now? You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but I think he really put the time into... Um, making me appreciate what science was mm -hmm. or what technology was mm -hmm. at the time. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So it's interesting. It's like... But so that didn't blossom it's, it's until weirdly, 30 years oh, yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like politically motivated, but it's very, it's still very positive, uh, uh, you know, fathering. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Care, and, and, you know. and just to date myself, I was 10 years old when I watched on a little black and white. Um, <laughs> Neil walking on the moon. And, oh wow! And I watched it for a while. and said, "I gotta go play baseball." And so <laughs> I, I ran out. I ran outside into the cold day sack, and I looked up at the moon. And I go, wow, that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you said, this, this is seeing it with my own eyes. Yeah, can't quite make him out on the moon. But okay, now pitch that ball. I'm ready. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, okay, well, so. Um, so then, okay, that's that answers a bunch of my questions. <laughs> this is the problem with doing this interview in this way. I have a whole bunch of questions that you already answered, but it's all right. Oh, okay. Um, this is far um, roll. When you uh, so okay, now here's a different question, which is when do you feel like you started learning how to be a scientist, not just you know being interested. In, well, I, you can interpret the question any way you want. Yeah, yeah. But. So I think my first. Uh, so when I was in high school, I think chemistry was kind of my first science love mm -hmm. uh, and the chemistry teacher would I would could stay after school and mm -hmm. I could do experiments and so mm -hmm. I would make my own aspirin and t if you mm -hmm. ask yes I took it um, <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh that would that sounds like a bad idea but uh, <laughs> but so chemistry was sort of where I f in high school you know this oh. is this is kind of fun I, I enjoyed going in the lab and just making stuff up um, and doing that. So oh, that's I think it's sort of where I got the first taste of, you know, it was unsupervised research, but it was research. Right. Well, and a lot of your research is, you know, not exactly chemistry, but in that vein. Mm -hmm. uh, so. It's nu more nuclear now than chemistry, I would say. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, okay. So, well, maybe we'll, uh, let me let me ask you these questions before we get into the science. Uh, sure. So, now that you're an astrophysicist, mm -hmm. what, do you, what are some of the things you like the most about your job? Ooh. <laughs> um, I like the discovery of the unknown. Mm -hmm. I get a thrill out of finding something small as it may be, <laughs> as insignificant as it may be, <laughs> maybe, um, <laughs> but finding out new stuff. I, yeah. I enjoy that search. In yeah. fact, it's often more the process of the search than maybe exactly what you find. And mm -hmm. oftentimes I don't find exactly what I was looking out 
to seek, but I found <laughs> something just as good or better. Yeah. So it's the process I think I really enjoy. Um, I really enjoy uh, students. I really enjoy uh, research with uh, graduate students and postdocs and mm-hmm. undergrads. So I really enjoy the people yeah. aspect of it as well. Yeah, I love the people aspect yeah. too. Uh, Cool. Uh, was there anything? Uh, we this is the potentially editable out question. Is there anything you don't like about your job? Anything I don't like about my job? Yes. <laughs> uh, at least in the current rendition. So uh, within academia, academia comes with a lot of um, baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots of forms, uh, lots of things, and um, right. And I don't necessarily enjoy filling forms or mandatory committee meetings or things of that <laughs> That's form. True, right? So yeah. Yeah. And the, the higher up you get in academia, the more the more that the comes, more at, comes you. at you. And, and that's sort of the weirdest thing is right, you're hired in for your research because you're a good researcher. Yeah, yeah. But over time, you have your you plate is so full with all this other stuff. Right. You're not. You're doing your research vicariously through your through your students. Yeah, yeah. But you yourself lose the joy of that, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> but you don't. You don't completely lose it. You but, don't completely. Uh, but it goes but it's down. A lot of, it yeah. goes down. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So what would you? I don't know if this is a different question, but I'll say it anyway. Sure. What, what would you say motivates you the most in your profession? You already said this is discovery aspect. Yeah, um, just excitement of something right. new. All right, we can just move on then. And the other thing that I really like, you might as well put this way if you okay. want, is sometimes, <laughs> on occasion, every once in a blue moon, sometimes the things that you find are actually either a useful for other people or they're a prediction of something that came through. And then yeah. it's like a little validation mark. It's like, <laughs> yes, all right. <laughs> I'm still waiting for a prediction of mine to come true. But the, the, the first one I, I, I do, appreciate when something I do is useful to someone else. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so then, um, okay, so I think that everyone, I think most people agree this is a challenging profession, uh, not just because of how hard the math is or how mm-hmm. difficult the research is, but how competitive it can sometimes mm. be. So what would you say, I don't know, what was the most challenging part of getting to where you are currently? Um, the hardest transition to make is from being a postdoc to being a faculty member, if that's what you want. Right. Right. Because it's a game of musical chairs, and there's a hundred postdocs, and there's four positions, and right. That's so when you're tough. applying to yeah, when you're applying to faculty jobs, it's yeah, you're and you're competing with some of the smartest people in the world. <laughs> yeah. For yeah, uh, yeah, for this yeah, one yeah, job. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And 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 you know, time goes on, and uh, you know, the 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 hot fields of the day change and it's yes. like everybody wants to hire in the particular hot field right so just to give you an example um, when I was first started cosmology CMB was all the rage and everybody had to hire CMBers um, cosmology types mm-hmm. and that's not what I do um, uh, and then the next big thump that came through is exoplanets and everybody had to hire an exoplanet person <laughs> and I don't do exoplanets either <laughs> and then gravitational waves happen and everybody has to hire a gravitational wave person right. and so um, you know it was just it was always sort of against the, the hot topic of the day right right, right? Um, uh, but uh, you know Perseverance, I think, counts for a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I was actually out. I've been out of astronomy twice. Mm-hmm. 
The, and I've what's... come back twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it was on the last round where uh, I finally um, got a faculty position at Arizona State University. Um, and just to give you a sense of how long that process was, you know, normally when you're hired in as a, as a faculty member at university, you start off as an assistant professor, and then after a number of years, you become an associate professor, right. and then a number of years later, you become a full professor. So in at uh, Arizona State University, when I was finally hired, they just hired me as a full professor. Oh, well, that's so, good. So I skipped the you whole... At least got to skip that associate. part. <laughs> <laughs> not, uh, not because I didn't pay my dues. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. But yeah, I th that's really the, the, the hardest part is just the, the job part, right? Right. Yeah. You never you never know you'll have, if you'll have that job uh, when, you're, when you're on that track to it. Yeah. And you're always going to have to have a plan B. So whether it's going yes. into industry or, uh, you know, quants, financial quants were big for a while. Now it's all data science. Right. Um, you know, you just give yourself options is a good thing. Right. Right. Um, okay. So, well, let, let, me, let me actually, now that we're, we've talked about uh, you for a bit personally, but let's let's actually talk start talking about your research. So, okay. when you meet a new grad student or a mm -hmm. fellow scientist, and they ask you what you work on, what do you tell them? Stars. You <laughs> broadly defined. Just stars. No, I, I usually go stars. <laughs> pause. Broadly defined. <laughs> okay. Um, so well, from how they're made to how they live to how they die, and then what happens after they die, the okay. effects of that afterwards. So. so everything about stars? Everything about stars. Okay. I, I them all. Um, and so then, uh, so you have, uh, maybe you can give some examples, uh, maybe like things your students are working on or types of... Uh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so uh, my current two graduate students uh one of them um morgan uh and what she she works on is she works on pulsating stars so in particular pulsating white dwarfs mm -hmm. uh, and so she is looking for uh signatures of um nuclear reaction rates in there so in other okay. words it's sort of an inverse problem right so so, so when we so you, we're seeing these pulsing uh, white dwarf, white dwarf stars, <laughs> and <they're laughs> and uh, and trying to look for signatures of nuclear reactions. Correct. So it's trying to see evidence of some right. so particular. So the reaction, let's just say, if the reaction rate was ten times higher, you would expect. I'm just making this up off right. the top of my head. That's fine. A pulsation rate that was ten times higher. Okay. Or if it was half, so it would be half as many. Trying to relate the pulsations to something terrestrial, like a nuclear reaction rate. Oh, Correct. Okay. So then, and so this is this is theory, of course. <laughs> uh, theory and observation. I mean, okay. we, we, I mean uh, yes, it's theory on the calculations, but then we try and put it up against actual data uh -huh. uh, on, on the observations. Okay. So you do both. I'm mainly a theorist, uh -huh. uh, but I respect the observations a lot, and the mm -hmm. observations are usually the primary drivers of where we'll go. Right. Um, because, ooh, there's a mystery there. There's something kind of right. cool. So you're there. not actually under the, like out in the taking under the telescope taking uh, data, but oh, you're I'd be completely the wrong person for. <laughs> That completely, <laughs> but, uh, but but you'll happily look at somebody's data and use that and to, try and interpret it and yes, understand it and yes. make it better. Uh, yeah, uh, I learned really early on that I was not very good with um, mechanical and things. <laughs> Me neither. Who, who needs these extra ten screws? You know, it's, uh. Uh, we'll, when we get done with this, we'll see if I actually ended up hitting record on this podcast. Uh, so, it's, <laughs> but uh, anyway. you want to check now? <laughs> it looks like it. Uh, 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 but okay. anyway. We'll um, so then, okay. I, and so then, uh, the other student I have, uh, so that's Morgan. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then the other student I have, Eib, uh, Ibrahim, uh, he is working on, so stars, uh, well, most obviously they emit light, that's what we see, but they also emit other things that we don't see. And mm -hmm. so they emit things like particles like neutrinos. Mm -hmm. um, and surprisingly enough, after 40 or 50 years of stellar evolution, uh, the, the, uh, how those neutrinos look across all stars has not yet been done. And so um, that's okay. what we did most recently. So, so in other words, neutrinos are these things we can talk about neutrinos. Mm -hmm. These are the, the neutrinos are these things that you say that we don't see that we can't see them with They're our eyes. eyes. They're uh, these particles, these mm -hmm. uh, very light particles that barely interact with us. Right. And so we can't directly. We have to design very uh, large instruments to detect them. Right. Um, so, but we have detected them three times, uh, neutrinos. So most importantly, we detect them from the sun. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as we talk here, there's roughly about a trillion neutrinos rolling through your body mm -hmm. right now. <laughs> um, uh, but they don't interact with things mm -hmm. mostly. Mostly. <laughs> Sorry. Except the occasional rare DNA twist, but <laughs> hey. Um, uh, then we get it from Supernova 1987A. We caught 10 of those neutrinos. 10, ten individual neutrinos. 10 individual neutrinos out of approximately 10 to the 52 that were emitted. Okay. So. It's not. <laughs> yeah, 10 to the 52. Huge monster number, and all we do is catch 10 of them. Right. Um, in part, A, they don't interact much, and B, we just didn't have the detectors up and running. Right. That's 87. Uh, yeah. So. 87, it, you know, it was, they were actually looking for, it was a serendipitous discovery. They're actually looking for other things and, oh, didn't they take one oh, off. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Wow. And not only that, it went off at three different places in the world. So we knew that it was, it was real. It was, it was not co just coincident. coincident. Yeah. Right, right. So. And then the other one, uh, neutrinos that we've discovered much more recently, uh, and this is with the ice cube detector down in um, Antarctica. So mm -hmm. it's buried under the ice to help suppress the background. Uh, and so they have detected neutrinos from very distant um, galaxies of Blazar. examples of things that we've seen neutrinos that we have so far seen neutrinos from yes but uh, all stars admit, emit neutrinos is that right all of them every single one of them every they're second. all emitting neutrinos they're all, all emitting the time. neutrinos at various levels yes uh, and so so this is the calculation or of, of how much how, how much different stars emit neutrinos. Different types of neutrinos, when they emit different neutrinos. Mm -hmm. And then you can ask yourself, okay, so what if I add up all the energy that comes out in photons mm -hmm. from stars? And I take a look at all the neutrino emission that comes out of stars. Mm -hmm. Which one's greater? And by how much? And so it turns out that 7% of a star's total emission comes out in the form of these neutrinos. Okay. Yes, 93% comes out in photons that we see, mm -hmm. but amazingly enough, 7% of the total emission comes out of these little tiny subatomic neutral particles. Cool. Uh, okay, cool. So then, okay, so those are a couple examples, um, mm -hmm. but you're also, you do other things with your day. Uh, 
Sleep. Uh, <laughs> ride my bike. <laughs> swim. Um, well, I meant you do other things professionally oh! during your day. Um, <laughs> yes, I do. You're also an ed- ed- assistant editor-in-chief. Uh, uh, I am associate editor-in-chief. Associate editor-in-chief. So I'm basically second in command um, uh, of the uh, American Astronomical Society journals. Uh, and so we publish things like the Astrophysical Journal, the Astronomical Journal, and a number of mm-hmm. uh, journals. And just for context, this is, for example, the only journal I ever publish in and like <laughs> For a you. lot of people I know. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> exactly. Good. With pay. all due apologies <laughs> to my British and European colleagues. <laughs> but but it is one of the like big It is uh, one of the main um, it is one of the main professional journals. Yeah, so I have been doing, uh, so when people submit their articles, like you mm-hmm. submit your article to uh, a journal, it doesn't just get immediately published. Um, it goes, <laughs> right. under- better not be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, uh, we send them out for peer review, and mm-hmm. so that means that you send it out to someone else who uh, takes a look at the manuscripts and writes up comments, mm-hmm. uh, and you send those back to the author, and there's sort of a loop that you go through improving the paper. That's the whole point of peer review is is to improve the paper as you get through right. and then when it reaches some point everybody's happy you accept the paper for any uh for um publication right and so being a scientific editor is sort of running that peer review process between the authors and the independent reviewers right um and so um now you like because i noticed like at least when i submit papers to you you seem to know the paper like read the paper at least at least look at it quickly. <laughs> that means you're reading a ton of papers. Yes. <laughs> like yes. a lot. Like yes. <laughs> because yes. <laughs> like I can every paper. I can be quantitative about. It, but you are right. I do read the papers before. So when, as an editor, so a paper comes in, and in uh, the first thing you should do mm-hmm. um, is at least look at it. Um, right. If not, read it in a little bit more detail than that. Right. I typically err on that side of reading it a bit right. more. Um, because then you have to choose a referee. Okay. Who's going to be the independent reviewer of this article? And in order to right. make a, a reasonable choice on that, you have to have read the papers. Right. And you know, okay, who who's who's yeah. playing here? Who's an expert in this field? Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I do go through it. Uh, I started being a scientific editor about 15 years ago, so I've been doing this for about 15 years. Um, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I, I could tell you why I decided to do this. Um, <laughs> it's actually a fun story, so let me just okay. tell it. Um, uh, so when I did uh, decide to leave Silicon Valley and, and, and do astronomy, mm-hmm. and I went to UC Santa Cruz, uh, my very first year there, um, uh, they had moved the Lick Observatory Library into uh, the building where the astronomy was. It was a temporary thing while they were doing some stuff up mm-hmm. in the observatory. And so in the first week uh, that I was a first year grad student, I walked into the library and it, it was a, you know, 20 by 20 or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I remember walking in there and they had a complete selection of APJ, MNRAS, ANA, Annual Review, PSAP, <laughs> and I was thinking, wow all known astronomy is in this room. <laughs> Let's get cracking. <laughs> and so I developed this this habit as a graduate student of just voraciously reading the journals. Um, I would just pick up a full volume from 1952 and just I would just start going through every article in the journal. Wow. Um, just, okay, what are they talking about? What are they doing? Um, and 
time goes on. Uh, and as you go on, I found myself, because of all the duties you have to do as a postdoc and then later, right. I found myself reading the journals less and less and less. And I right. really didn't like that. Um, and so in 2009, the opportunity arose uh, to apply for a scientific editor position. And I thought, this would be a great way to get me back into the literature. Wow. <laughs> Forced me to read the literature. Wow. You don't have to force me That's too hard. So I will do it. <laughs> but, um, and so that uh, that was my original motivation for being a scientific editor. Um, uh, and yes, as a scientific editor, at the end of the day, yes, you are responsible for making a decision mm -hmm. on accepting the paper, rejecting the paper, and so on. So it does come with a little... Um, Power. <laughs> uh, that's not the right word. Uh, <laughs> it does come with responsibility. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and you have to weld that responsibility carefully. Yes. Um, because people invest many hours in yeah. their articles. And yeah, so it, absolutely. It's a people game. It's a people game, and so you need some people skills. Um, <clears throat> but um, that was my original motivation, and I still do it. Um, I'm probably one of, the, I probably handle more papers than just about anybody. Yeah. So just to put more, a number, just to put a number, just, <laughs> <laughs> so just to put a number on it. Uh, these days, I probably handle on the order of about five to six hundred new manuscripts per year. Wow! So that's about that's like two a day. Uh, yeah, on average. On average. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's a lot. It, it it's a lot. Um, but I enjoy it. It's fun. Yeah. I I enjoy interacting with people. I mm -hmm. enjoy um, helping people improve their manuscripts and get them to the point of um, uh, acceptance and publication. Well, it's, it's it's I mean obviously as you um, as you're aware it's a crucial component of our, our whole scientific backbone uh, to have this process. Yes, so. and the the other thing of course is you weed out all the nonsense up front. <laughs> there is, you know, yeah. you are a gatekeeper in that sense, right? right? right. So you get a bunch of nonsense coming in, no, 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 right, no right. we're not even going to peer review that thing, it's so bad. Right. So there is a definite component to that. Right. Um, but the other thing I would like to mention, uh, as part of my scientific uh, editor stuff, or stuff I do with the journals, is I do run a YouTube channel for oh, the yeah, Double Ace well Journals. Plug your, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> plug my Double Ace YouTube, or the Double Ace's YouTube channel. Don't say mine. Don't say mine. <laughs> I'm the principal content creator for the Double Ace Journals <laughs> YouTube channel. Uh, uh, and actually, it's just actually it's not even the journals; it's larger than that. It's mm -hmm. the entire American Astronomical Society. But uh, I am the primary content creator, and every four days uh, we do a new release, and I will take uh, the actual article that somebody published and with the author, and yes. I have the author walk through their article from start to beginning, uh, and they get to explain their article. Yeah. Um, and it's it works really well because uh, it's different than a PR piece, right? Because a PR right. piece, somebody else is writing it. That's right. And that's I'd right. rather hear from the actual author yes. what their that's interpretation right. of their paper is. I totally agree with that. The you know the the, the press releases and these things are always written, at, yeah, they're written by the same <laughs> people at the newspaper who just want to make it as flashy and exciting as possible. Right. And Oftentimes we'll clickbait, say things clickbait. right, clickbait, <laughs> and they'll often say things that are like ridiculous, completely wrong. 
uh, and misquote the, <laughs> the authors right, and right, uh, out of context. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, and part of that, part of the whole point of this podcast is to, to get away from that sort of thing. And also, mm-hmm. and and I appreciate I've, I've watched your uh, YouTube channel. It's uh, really nice uh, to get the author to just explain because the articles are often very dense yes. and there's a lot that if you're, especially if you're not in the field, there's a lot to oh, digest. And, and, and caveat impor there, if you happen to go check the channel out as you're listening to this <laughs> this podcast, the intended audience for these is, is active researchers. Right. So, so you may well hear things <laughs> that you're not familiar with, but right. that's okay. Yes. It's good to hear how astronomers and astrophysicists talk to each other when we're talking the game. Yes. Right? What language do we use? Yeah. What, how do we describe That's things? That's right. And even if you don't understand it, it's, it's a learning process. And yeah. Who knows? It may turn you into <gasps> being an astronomer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. like day-to-day research looks like I mean in, in other words like like when you say you study stars mm-hmm. or you st- work on this problem like what does that involve or what does it involve maybe what does it involve for your students I don't know right um, uh, yeah so part of that daily research is thinking about new ideas that maybe somebody hasn't come up with. Mm-hmm. You, know, you always you right. have an idea, but then, you, then oh, this somebody did this in 1970. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> that's maybe the problem may, with may, reading may, every may, journal maybe, article. Maybe they didn't do such a great <laughs> job, or maybe we know more now. Maybe we yeah. have different data. Yeah. Uh, but trying to find what you're looking for are things. At least what I look for mm-hmm. um, are things that are different, that are new, um, or that maybe in some cases could be improved significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of that is there. Then once you come up with that idea. Um, uh, Sometimes you will throw it to your grad students or your postdocs, and mm-hmm. who knows that maybe that turns into their thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times you're working, uh, you're just working it out yourself, seeing that mm-hmm. this is going to hold water, um, and so on. So, so, so what are that like? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it sounds. I mean, your research is pretty varied, so a lot of the types of calculations you do are mm-hmm. pretty wide ranging, I guess. Yes. So, but anything from pencil and paper mm-hmm. analytical to uh, simple. 10 line programs to check something out mm-hmm. to other things that are more of in the 100,000 line code business mm-hmm. um, with, that you have to run on supercomputers so mm-hmm. yeah it runs the whole the whole gauntlet and mm-hmm. it really just depends on the problem and where mm-hmm. you're at on that okay uh, alright well let me ask you this question then mm-hmm. uh, now we're into the science what do you what would you what do you think is whatever broadly defined what do you think is your most impactful contribution or what <laughs> or interpret that as what work are you most proud of? Oh, goodness gracious. And it could be a recent thing or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let's go back to the useful part because okay. one of the things you like doing mm-hmm. is useful to somebody mm-hmm. besides me, um, <laughs> which I like anyway, but you know, yeah. uh, it's always good for other people to do it. So I think my probably at this point my, my largest contribution to the field that I'm most proud about uh, is probably the, uh, the Mesa... Um, 
instrument paper is the MESA software instrument for computing the structure of stars and the evolution okay. of stars. So, so let's talk about that. What, so the, so the MESA is a code uh-huh. uh, that's uh, open source. Anyone, open anyone source. listening to this can download it if they want to. Pick it up and go. Uh, and and star. Maybe you should explain what, what, it, what it does. Uh, okay, uh, so what it does, well, first of all, you have to have an idea. Let's just do the sun. Let's just evolve the sun. Right. Let's just take a very simple case. We're going to evolve the sun. So you go ahead and you download the code. You go ahead and compile it. You read the read the docs. Uh, you read other material about how to run it. Uh, but then you create a file. It's going to specify some of the parameters of, this, of the star that you want to do. Mm-hmm. For example, what is the mass? Mm-hmm. Is it a mass like the sun? Is it mm-hmm. 10 times that? Is it a tenth of that? Mm-hmm. Is it a Jupiter? Um, so you have to pick like the math, or the math, <laughs> the mass, uh, and then you want to specify things well, like what's it made out of? How much hydrogen does it have? How much helium does it have? Mm-hmm. How much metals does it have? Mm-hmm. And you, you basically specify some external properties in a file, mm-hmm. um, and then you fire the program up, and it will go ahead and read those specifications, and then it starts its calculation in time evolving that model Okay, forward. so it tells us what the star will do over the course of its lifetime. Correct. Just based on all of those parameters that you give it. And, and behind there are some uh, equations that mm-hmm. guide that evolution on mm-hmm. what should happen. And so obviously, I mean, it's obvious to me why this is so impactful, but... Uh, <laughs> well, I think, so the, the reason why <clears throat> I think Mesa is, um, you know, Mesa... Uh, has literally probably thousands of users in the community these days mm-hmm. um, over time several thousand anyway <clears throat> that are using it it's produced hundreds of PhD theses it's um, yeah it's it's a very widely used uh, mm-hmm. program and it has helped uh, in the past decade with a renaissance in stellar astrophysics mm-hmm. right there was some notion 10 15 years ah stars are a solved problem right we don't need to worry about stars we can move on to other things <laughs> Boy, I couldn't be more wrong. Um, <laughs> and and so one of those was just observational drivers, the mm-hmm. amount of new data coming out from satellites on stars. Mm-hmm. And we all were also fortuitous in the timing. So the first public version of Mesa came out in 2011, which just happened to be when all the stellar stuff was rising, and there was this huge pent-up demand from both theorists mm-hmm. and observers to give me a model of this thing. How do mm-hmm. I know what's going on? I have observations, but in order to help interpret those observations, I need a model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Mesa was sort of the right tool at the right time, right place, and mm-hmm. it, it took off. Um, so I'm very proud of that work, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because it's, it's done a lot. Mm-hmm. If you're asking me what is what work I am most proud of technically, mm-hmm. I would say probably it was some work I have done um, in equations of state, so the thermodynamics of what happens inside stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is probably one of my, I'm most proud of that technical work, right. I think. Yeah, well, my students are <laughs> are using, are benefiting from that uh, as well. Yeah, it's useful, useful. It is, it is useful. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely very impactful. So, and it's interesting because these are things that are really, um, 
tools that are like uh, very basic, uh, not like they're complicated, but they're very foundational. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, it's not like you're saying uh, my most impactful work was like in you know d- you know doing this specific uh, sudden, star, yeah, star or something. Yeah, it's more all stars, all stars, <laughs> and it, it's it's infrastructure, right? It's right. In, that's it's right. Infrastructure that will really uh, help drive. Um, although that wasn't the original intention when I did mm-hmm. it, I was just doing. Mm-hmm. Ooh, nobody's. This is a cool way to do this. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and so um, yeah, I can see if I can describe the essence of that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually, when people think of interpolation formulas, they think of one point to the next point to the next point, and I'm going to take three points, and I want to know what happens somewhere in between, right? And so it's multiple points. You're interpolating across multiple. Okay. Points. So when you say that, sorry, just to be clear, I'm. I, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to think of whether my parents know what you mean by interpolate, but... Uh. Okay, got <laughs> it. Let me, let me back off and my re- two rephrase listeners. that. So if I only have... Let me... Okay, so what does interpolation mean? Let's say I have three points. Mm-hmm. I have one, two, and three. Right. Those are my data points. Suppose I want to know what happens at 1.5. Right. Or 2.5. Right. Okay, well, I have three neighboring data points, and so I can use those three neighboring data points to tell me something about what's happening at 1.5 or 2.5. Right. That process of telling me something about nearby points is called interpolation. Okay. And so, okay, so now, okay, where were you going with that? <laughs> <laughs> you want my most technical on that one, yeah. That's fine. <laughs> so that's interpolation. But that's one way to do interpolation of neighboring points around mm-hmm. the area I'm interested the other way to do it is to say I have this point, but not only do I know the value at that point, but I know the slope of a quantity through that point. Mm-hmm. The derivative. So I know both the value and the derivative at that point. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll even know the second derivative at that point. And so the idea is to tell you something about neighboring points by using um, just the function values there and how they change. Right. Using calculus. Using calculus. So it was a a very different approach when it was done. Okay. And the reason why it's nice is because it makes a very direct connection between the thermodynamics Mm -hmm. and the interpolation method. Okay. So you actually, there's physics in your... There's physics in the interpolation. Interpolation code. It's not just, you know, random things. Um, And so anyway, so you... Okay. That's fine. But no, I mean, that's interesting. These are the things that I latch on to, too, is like these uh, really cool physics-y things about, uh, and, uh, about the, you know, the useful stuff that you develop mm-hmm. uh, that maybe most of the users <laughs> don't care as much about. They don't care as much about, but you know, they run uh, it every single day, and yeah. they just don't know it because yeah. it's part of the infrastructure in the background, you know, mm-hmm. unless you are some thermodynamics aficionado you're never going to care you're never going to know right but it's on in the back end Mm -hmm. doing its job You know, I've, I've gone to your website so many times for other things, too, like, you know, all, all kinds of things, like you said, equations of state, nuclear reaction networks, and uh, 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 tests of uh, fluid dynamics oh, tests yeah. and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, just like lots of resources that, like, I bet you a lot of people also make those things, but then don't put them up <laughs> publicly for people to share, you know? <laughs> and uh, uh, Well, for, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah. 
I mean, again, to date myself, um, I was trying to share infrastructure, mm -hmm. software, before there was GitHub, before <laughs> there was SourceForge, mm -hmm. before any of that, and people were telling me I was crazy to be doing open source. Oh, because you, you should patent your stuff and... No, uh, that I should take it and use it as a competitive advantage for myself. Oh, yeah. And that was the whole... That's what everybody had done, right? Because right. if you develop something, ooh, I can get resources, i.e. money or computer time or right. whatever it is, because I have a capability no one else has. The only person who can do this is me. Right. And so it's a competitive advantage. Right. Right? But I... That was not that's what not, I wanted. I, I wanted to help people. Right. I, wanted, I wanted to broadcast right. it to people. Right. So, so the whole reason that stuff is on my website and not on one of these other open source repositories is because that's how I started trying to give it away, which is mm -hmm. posting it on my website. Mm -hmm. And I just decided yeah. to stick with it. I, um, yeah, I know. I, had, I, I have sometimes been given that same advice to like not share my code. And, uh, and uh -huh. usually my attitude is, I'll post my code. No one's going to download it <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah I mean it's it's you're doing that's the act of doing science is you're communicating these things and making it usable by others other than helping people and just yeah. you know building community but that was always so much more important to me than than you I may be able to get an extra 10 bucks if I keep this quiet you know? uh, it was no <laughs> So, hey, hey, but it's a philosophy, and I certainly understand the reasons why why someone would not want to publicly share it. Right, so especially all, given how competitive things are. Right. Yeah, uh, it's competitive, and when you do release something, there is at least a little bit of responsibility to maintain it. Right. Or to help That's people right. to use it, and that implies a time requirement. Yes. Right. <laughs> which then implies a monetary requirement. So there is some responsibility that goes along along with just right. throwing it out there. And not right. everybody wants to do no. that. I just and put a I, I get it. It's okay. <laughs> I just put a scary read me on my <laughs> people don't bug me usually. But uh, yeah, but, you know, and, I mean they're all good they're just yeah, different yeah. approaches. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, okay, well, that's great. Um, so <laughs> let me ask you this now. <laughs> this is the tough question. Uh -oh. All right. In your opinion, why should we care about astrophysics? Why should we care about astrophysics? We should care about astrophysics because we have always looked up at the stars and wondered what they were and what are we doing here? How do we fit into this? Mm -hmm. And so I, this astronomy, and occasionally astronomy will help make something really practical, like CCDs, uh, which you can find in your iPhone and you can mm -hmm. take a picture at. So on occasion, there are technical advances that astronomy helps do. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, I think but that's not why we should care about but it. But that's not why you should care about it. The reason you care about it because it gives you an intellectual and emotional satisfaction about how and where you fit into the universe. That's all it, it is. Does, that does, that, that's I all agree. it is. And you either say yes to that or you say no to that. <laughs> Most people say yes to that because we've all looked up at the sky as little kids. What the heck is that? Mm -hmm. And so it's just it's, a, it's an intellectual satisfaction more mm -hmm. than anything else. All right. I agree with that. Um, all right. So what's what's next on the horizon for you? What are the next big questions to tackle? Ooh. Hey. 
Am I giving you away my next research project? Oh, that's another one. I can't. Right. Oh, they're going to steal my project. Yeah. I don't care about I'm usually so far out on the fringe that I don't worry about people scooping me on something. Um, yeah, because in general, my research has been... Uh, um, backbone or infrastructure mm-hmm. or I don't necessarily chase the latest and hottest right. thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an ambulance chaser, so sure. to speak. And I do respect ambulance chasers. Um, <laughs> but so then what, uh, so, okay, so then what's the next infrastructure that you think would yeah, be? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's a really good question. I'm looking at that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of, of things that would be really useful for the community to have. I think uh, some sort of an open source uh, project that um, deals with, I'm just going to say the word, <laughs> uh, opacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, oh, yeah. to be able to calculate. That's so opacity is how radiation interacts with matter. Right. Okay. And it depends on how energetic that light is, whether it's very energetic or not very energetic at all. It depends on what type of material you're talking about. You're talking about carbon, you're talking about hydrogen, what are you, right. iron, what are you talking about? And as you might imagine, when you consider all of those types of energies of light and all the different types of elements, that gets to be a very complicated problem very quickly. Right. And there's only a few groups in the world right. that can do this. And just as, for context, it's it's very clear that opacity, well, to me, but maybe not to our listeners, that opacity is like crucial to pretty much everybody doing astrophysics because the light, is it, from whatever thing you're looking at, the light has to go through some material. Absolutely. And that's what makes it look the way it does. Yes. And that's how we learn most of what we learn about things is the material that the light passed through and and what it looked and, and, and that that tell, that's how we infer a lot of what we do. So let's the interaction between light and matter is what we call opacity. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's just boil it down. Yeah. And, but there are, it's, it's a very complicated problem, and there's only a few groups in the world that do it really well. Right. And they're all closed. Right. They um, just have their own codes. They are, and in some cases, as you might imagine, some of these um, uh, reside at some of the national labs mm-hmm. uh, in sure. the U.S. Sure. Uh, opacity is so they important have, there. Mm-hmm. Um, reasons we don't have to get into. For reasons <laughs> we don't have to get into, but it's important there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there is not... Let's put it this way. The last major updates to opacities on a global sense was done maybe 25 years ago. Okay. Right? And so I think what astronomy really needs is a real good open source toolkit that can calculate opacities for you across a wide range of uh, light energies and for all different types of elements. That's uh, a really smart idea. So I, that's what and, I'm and looking at. it's funny at. because, like, it's funny because pretty much everybody else I will ask this question will not give me an answer like that. Okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> like I but, said, I'm so far yeah. on the fringe but, but that's, again, that's infrastructure. That's, like, incredible. That's like saying, like, we don't have roads. <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We don't. We still have wagon wheels going yeah, over dirt yeah, trails, right? Uh, you know, there are some people that have their own roads. 
roads that we don't, we're not allowed to roads. use. You're not allowed to go on it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like, and so it's up to somebody to make some roads. Yeah. And, you know, that's not what people want to do. They want to go to the place and do it, do the thing. <laughs> or they, and, and once uh, you put that tool out there, it will, it will, it will have its own momentum and people will right. contribute it because they want to apply it to their stuff or they want right. to make it better in this regard or right. that regard. But I think that's really a crucial piece of uh, infrastructure to be looking at. Well, that's so that's an infrastructure side. I think on the science side, um, uh, pulsating white dwarfs still have some fascinating. I still think there's some gold in there to okay. dig out. And so I, I, so in general, my research. You mentioned I do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, the more derogatory way to say that is I strip mine. Um, <laughs> so I go into a field. I look around. I find a piece of gold. I find a piece of diamond. Or maybe I don't find anything at all. <laughs> and I move on. Right. I, I don't. I haven't taken the approach where I just dominate a particular topic. So right. a New York Times person comes in their Rolodex, oh, this person for this topic. I'm not You're there. Not, I'm not there. You don't show I'm up. Not, I don't show up <laughs> because I tend to, I, I like the freedom to move around between different topics. Right, and right. So. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated a little bit by uh, still... It's still relatively recent for me. I've only been doing it for about three years, and I still mm -hmm. think there's a couple more gold nuggets to find there. So what is it about uh, pulsating white dwarfs that is like, I don't know, that you think is exciting or interesting? Uh, because they can tell you about things you cannot see. Mm -hmm. So all we see is the surfaces of stars. Mm -hmm. Then it gets too optically thick, too much opacity to bring right. that one back. So we you can't, can't see, see into the inside. The we can't interior. see inside of the sun. We can't see inside of a white dwarf. But what uh, what these pulsating stars do is they basically give you a telescope into the interior of the star. And so I find that just concept fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like sonar underneath the, so, the ocean. Right, right? okay, because they're right. oscillating. It's telling you something about, yeah, the waves that are rippling from deep in the interior. They can only propagate in this way if the star is this way. And so right. it's telling you about what the conditions are in the interior. What's the temperature? What's it made out of? Mm, How okay. it's the density? It's t and so they give us a probe into the inside. I find that fascinating because we have otherwise very few probes that will tell us about the inside of stars, mm. which is, to me, where the action takes place. Right, right. <laughs> Okay, well that's great. Um, I think it's I think it's about uh, well, it's all the time we have. Drats, we gotta talk another hour here. Uh, I gotta go because because uh, Abby's giving a talk in ten minutes. But uh, are you gonna oh, be yeah, down there? Yeah, well, you gotta be down. All right, well, all right. Let me do the quick. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I had a lot of fun talking science with you, and I hope you'll join us again sometime. Awesome. I would really appreciate it, and thank you so much, Paul. Right. Thank you. You might notice at the end there I had to cut the interview. If you'll remember, we did this in the middle of a conference, and we had to wrap up because we were about to go see a talk by Dr. Abigail Poland, who you might remember from episode one, Small World. In any event, I'd like to thank Frank one more time. I think he has a great perspective and approach to science, and I think he's great at seeing the beauty and complexity in the little things we often overlook. If you want to see more of Frank, you can check out the YouTube series, the AAS Journal Author Series, where he interviews authors of recent journal articles so that they can explain what they did in their paper. Thank you, Dr. Timmies, for the great conversation, and thank you to our listeners. We will see you next time. The Astrophysics Podcast is supported in part by the National Science Foundation under grant number AAG 2206-299. All the music on the Astrophysics Podcast was written and recorded by Britton Ashford, and you'll find it on her album Trotter. 
All songs are used with permission from the artist and producer. Thanks again to Britain for allowing me to use her music. Please look her up if you enjoyed it. This podcast is produced in beautiful Lafayette, Indiana by me, Paul Duffel, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Purdue University.